Nathan Wilson's new Southern Garden Show is on the air. Your host, Nathan Wilson, with Lanier Nursery and Gardens in Flowery Branch, Georgia, is excited about providing information every gardener and non-gardener, homeowner, and apartment dweller can use. From vegetables to containers and compost to pruning shears, Nathan Wilson's new Southern Garden Show is here for you. Now here's Nathan. Well, good morning, gang. This is the New Southern Garden. Of course, I am Nathan Wilson, your gardening pal, your gardening confidant, your gardening friend. Be sure that uh, if you're just joining us for this program this morning, never heard of New Southern Garden, learn about what we are all about at NewSouthernGarden.com. And on the webpage there, of course, you can listen to every episode we've ever had, including last week's show. Now, we started a discussion last week about perennial gardens, creating perennial beds. We're going to continue that conversation, not today, but next week. Because, of course, here we are at the end of April, and it's time for our Q&A session. I know over winter, over winter we don't necessarily have a, a whole lot going on in the landscapes, and we've had a few questions here or there. But at the end of the month, through the growing season, I do like to have a Q&A session where you've sent us questions, and we're going to give you answers. And so on today's program, we've got a great selection of questions that are hopefully, hopefully, even though they may not be your question, hopefully you've got a similar problem that we can help solve. But there are some ways, if you've got something bothering your begonias, or if you have something agitating your asters, <laughs> you can send us questions through the contact us page at NewSouthernGarden.com, but also if you have a picture or a video, something that needs to be shown, be sure to check us out at Facebook or on Facebook and on Instagram because those are great ways to send pictures and other people can see them as well. But, like I said, we are going to put on postponement our discussion on perennial beds. Of course, last week we did, just to summarize what you missed if you weren't here with us, we did talk about selecting a good site or rather, well, let me back up. Before you start digging your perennial gardens in or before you start purchasing or growing plants, it's a good idea to examine the site to observe the site to find out what you've got you know sun shade the light conditions the soil conditions is it a wet spot is it a boggy spot is it a dry spot is the soil clay or is it more loam or is it is it does it need some improvements and so, of course, based on those things, we talked about some things you want to think about for the site, but also, just as important, just as important as the site conditions is going to be what you want out of the landscape, making sure that the plants you're growing, uh, the, the kind of foliages and the textures of the foliage, the colors of the flowers, those kinds of things, making sure that when you're selecting plants for a perennial bed, that you're getting just what you want. Because, you know, I do a lot of landscape design through Lanier Nursery and Gardens, where you can find me throughout the week. Of course, we're in Flowery Branch, Georgia. Uh, but 
folks will always uh, say, I want you to do what you want to do. And, and I do. I give them recommendations. But in, the rea- but in the end, the reality is that you're the person, the gardener, the cultivator, if you will. You're the, you're the person who's coming in and out of that front door or off and on to the back patio every day. Not the designer. So if you find a designer or someone who you, you trust to uh, help you with your landscape, be sure that you're getting what you want. Because in the end, it's not about what the designer wants. Yes, it's about good recommendations, and, and the designer should be able to help assist you in creating a space that is appropriate, using plants that are ideal for those conditions. But if, if you look at your plan, say you do get a design, you look at your plan, and there's a few things on there you just don't like. Don't use them just because the designer has suggested them. See, the point is there are plenty. There are plenty of plants in this beautiful green earth we live in, and there are always alternatives. There are always alternatives to something. For instance, let me give you an example about a design that came to uh, our office. So there was a, I call them third-party designers, uh, if they're not you know, a design from us, or if they're not necessarily linked to a nursery, but third-party designers, people who, that's all they do. I'm sure they do great work and great, great, great things. I'm not uh, bashing in any ways, but they tend to have a palette of plants they choose from, and they may not veer from that very often from design to design. Another aspect is they may choose plants that are very pretty. They may choose plants that are new. They may choose plants that are um, uh, let's say this, a little hard to find. And that's okay, but hard to find plants makes the design process, the installation process for you a little more difficult, maybe a little more stressful. And so when this one particular design came in, let's just use a name, it was called Ivory White Camellia. So there was a plant on the plan that said Ivory White Camellia. Use that here and there. Well, ivory white camellia was not available in our area. And, of course, the clients uh, were here in northeast Georgia. However, there was a uh, camellia that we have in stock called victory white. Okay? So victory white camellia was grown. Now, again, the concept is what we're looking at when we talk about a plan. It's a concept. The plan is not the Bible. It can be changed. It can be altered. But it's a good starting point. And so instead of using ivory white, camellia looked almost identical to victory white. And so we were able to help the, uh, the, the gardener, the homeowner, achieve the same concept with just a slightly different plant, a plant which was more readily available. Looking for ivory white, you found a posting online, and even the online nursery said out of stock, out of stock, out of stock. So it wasn't very easy to find that particular plant. But then working with a plant nursery, they know the ones, they know the plants that are available, that are being produced, that are ready to be installed into your landscape. And so the design process can sometimes be a bit stressful when you're working with a designer. But the goal here is to make sure that whatever is being suggested or conceptualized on paper that you are able to achieve that goal because you want to make sure that you, you're the person who's going to be enjoying those plants for 20, 25, 30, 35, hopefully 40 or more years. And you got to be happy with it. You got to be happy. And like I said, one of the things that I strive to do, of course, is 
uh, recommend alternatives to plants that may not be easily found or alternatives to plants that you may not like. Say there's a plant that uh, we want to use some bright yellow foliage, but you don't like sunshine ligustrum, which is a bright yellow foliage plant. Well, you could use gold mop. Uh, cypress, gold mop cypress would be a good alternative because it achieves the same concept, bright yellow chartreuse foliage that's going to liven up a dark space. So uh, with all that being said, I just wanted to get to the point that last week we talked about installing or rather uh, selecting plants for your per- new perennial bed. And then the next few uh, additions after today's Q&A uh, or episodes, we will be talking about actually picking plants and getting that perennial bed started so you can get growing, of course, and get growing well. But that's a discussion for next week and maybe the week after. This week, of course, Q&A week, your questions, our answers. is one of my uh, favorite times of the month. And like I said, we try to do this at the end of the month, so be sure you're getting your questions in, say, for all of May. Uh, get them in at NewSouthernGarden.com on our contact us page or on Facebook and Instagram where you can send pictures and videos. Because as I say, in this business, in, in gardening, in this business, a picture is worth more than a thousand hundred billion gazillion words because there are so many things that we need to see uh, in this world of gardening that makes our landscapes beautiful. And so this first question today comes from Rhoda. Now she is in uh, Gainesville, Georgia area, and she has sent us a picture of a hydrangea, which I know I can't show to you, but she asks if I can identify the type of hydrangea she has because it hasn't bloomed. She does make a note that in late winter, she always uh, cuts it back, and she's wondering if maybe cutting it back has prevented it from blooming. She's had it for 10 years, and so not one bloom in 10 years. So, Rhoda, uh, here's what we've got here. Uh, your picture here, and I'm going to kind of describe it to the, to the listening audience. Of course, it is uh, green foliage, okay? It is kind of waxy sort of not not very shiny but definitely thick and waxy and we know it's a hydrangea because the leaves are sitting opposite each other along the stem and it does have a bit of a serration sort of like a serrated knife just a little jagged edge around the edges the margins of the leaves now this hydrangea does appear to be big leaf hydrangea now big leaf hydrangea is a uh, plant from Japan. It grows along the coast. And on the coast, of course, it has become tolerant of salt spray. So that's why this particular hydrangea is very waxy-like. It's got a thick cuticle. And of course, a cuticle is just a waxy coating over the leaf. Every leaf uh, on every plant has some degree of a cuticle. But this particular hydrangea is a very thick cuticle, which makes it look super waxy. And that kind of cuticle helps to keep it uh, protected from any salt sprays that it would have over there on the coast of Japan. But being a big leaf hydrangea, you do want to make sure that you're not pruning it, that you are not pruning it after it, let's see, before it blooms. (laughs) So you do not want to prune it in fall. You do not want to prune it in spring. You want to prune big leaf hydrangea after it blooms, which would be summer. As a matter of fact, some of the hydrangeas at Lanier Nursery and Gardens, where you can find me throughout the week, uh, they are blooming right now. The big leaves are starting to bloom. So this kind of plant, 
we say that it blooms on old wood. Now, old wood would be the wood that was uh, produced last year. So if you have been pruning it every late winter, early spring, then I hate to say it, Rhoda, but you have been removing the blossoms from your plant. Now, with that being said, there are some new hybrids, not I shouldn't say new hybrids, new selections of big leaf hydrangea that are called remonet types. Now, remonet types is a fancy gardening horticultural term for reblooming. Why they choose to use the word remonet instead of reblooming, I do not know. But the remonet types have the ability to produce blossoms, of course, on old wood, which is traditional, and they have the ability to produce blossoms on new wood. Now, some of the high-marketed types that you may see in the garden centers would be things like the endless summer hydrangea. Endless summer hydrangeas, they have several different flower forms. Some are mop heads, some are lace cap type hydrangeas. But regardless, those kinds of hydrangeas have the ability to bloom on new wood. Now, that doesn't mean that you want to prune them in the winter or early spring because you will be cutting off some of the blossoms that were set on the old wood from last year. So a general, a general rule of thumb is if a plant blooms before June, do not prune. Prune after it blooms. So that would be sometime probably in June, maybe late June, because right now some of the hydrangeas are just starting to blossom, which is great, which is wonderful. But keep that in mind that if you have a plant in your landscape, and this goes for more than just hydrangea, of course, uh, there are other types like forsythia and azaleas. All of these plants bloom before June, which means they're blooming on last year's growth. And if you do any pruning on the foliage or stems, uh, in late winter and early spring, you will be removing the blossoms and reducing the show, reducing the beautiful, blossomy, showy flowers uh, that we have here in the uh, early part of spring uh, through early summer, give or take. So I'll say it again, that if you have a plant that blooms before June, and these big leaf hydrangeas surely are one of those types, do not prune blooms before June, do not prune. Wait until after it blooms. And that is critical. So that's when people say, well, when do I prune it? Well, as soon as those flower pods are looking kind of sad, turning brown, maybe starting to go crunchy, give them a trim. And those bloom early enough that you won't be doing any stressful pruning. Of course, really, summer pruning is not stressful per se. But regardless, that will give them enough time to grow new wood over summer and that wood will bloom next year. All right, gang, we've got more of your questions in a few seconds. Be right back. Hey, gang, it's Nathan. Thanks so much for listening to the New Southern Garden Podcast. Of course, I love providing you with horticultural information to get you growing and growing well. But sometimes you need more than just information. You need plants. So I'd love for you to join me at Lanier Nursery and Gardens in Flowery Branch, Georgia, where you can find me throughout the week. But you can find more than just me, of course. <laughs> at Lanier Nursery and Gardens, you can browse through our wide selection of ornamental trees, glorious shrubs, and colorful perennials and annuals. And I want to thank all our listeners who have already made the trek to Lanier Nursery. It's been a pleasure to meet you and hear your gardening stories. We've got a wonderful crew of folks who are 
are just itching to help you grow your best garden ever. So check out LanierNurseryGardens.com for more information and be sure to like us on Facebook and Instagram. Now, let's get growing together. gang i hope this morning that you have your cup of coffee your notebook your gardening notebook and your pencil because we are here in the new southern garden answering your questions of course this is our q a week we're at the end of april the last saturday of april and we have collected your questions and we are going to answer them so if you have something that's burning through your bushes or like I said before, agitating your asters, then be sure to check us out online at NewSouthernGarden.com because there's a great contact us page. You can just simply type in your message, type in your question, tell us where you're gardening at because since we have this show posted online now, we're getting so many people listening outside of the Northeast Georgia mountains and we are building a strong New Southern Garden community online there. So, with all that being said, of course, the question that we just uh, were talking about was about hydrangeas. Rhoda gave us a que- uh, sent us a picture of a hydrangea asking if we could identify it, and we surely could. We found out that it is big leaf hydrangea. Now, we talked about, uh, if you missed that, we talked about uh, what time of year to prune your big leaf hydrangeas, and that, of course, would be in the uh, summertime, essentially, after they've bloomed. We say if something blooms before June, do not prune until after it blooms. Uh, So if you miss that, of course, it will be online at NewSouthernGarden.com. But I do want to take a few moments here and talk about other types of hydrangeas because not all hydrangeas act the same way. Not all hydrangeas bloom at the same time and not all hydrangeas bloom on the same kind of wood. Just to clarify what I mean when I talk about kind of wood, we say that some plants like big leaf hydrangea bloom on old wood. Old wood is wood that was produced last year. New wood, on the other hand, is wood that is produced this year. So big leaf hydrangea blooms on old wood, which means we don't prune it till after it blooms. But there are a couple of hydrangeas that bloom on new wood that is safe to prune right now if you need to. And those two would be the panicled hydrangea. Now, panicled hydrangea has a uh, probably probably the biggest cheerleader of panicled hydrangea or most celebrity would be the limelight hydrangea. Of course, limelight hydrangea is a panicled hydrangea. They have beautiful white showy blossoms. Limelight gets its name because it starts out a kind of limey green and then fades to a creamy ivory white, which again fades to a rich kind of pinkish red. Now, the, all the panicles are going to bloom on new wood. So, at the nursery, of course, where you can find me throughout the week, Lanier Nursery and Gardens, we do pruning on those types of, of hydrangeas in late winter and early spring. So, that reduces the size of the plant, helps to make it a bit more manageable because some of the panicles can get quite large, especially the old-fashioned kinds. And from there, we will say uh, that the growth that is produced from those the massive twigs, the new wood will bloom in the summer. They're actually quite late to bloom. But if you deadhead, if you're deadheading your panicled hydrangeas, there's a chance that they may bloom again, even in late, late summer. 
So it's a highly productive hydrangea. It's a no-brainer about pruning. You can prune it any time and it will still bloom. Beautiful plant and easy to maintain. Now, another hydrangea that blooms on new wood would be one of our native hydrangeas. Our native hydrangea uh, called smooth hydrangea or hydrangea arborescens is a hydrangea that's found right, right here along the Chattahoochee and now the banks of Lake Lanier. But it grows up and down the streams. It does, as all hydrangeas, they do like a good bit of water, a good bit of moisture, so it can handle that situation. But they too bloom on new wood. And so if you have any question about when to prune, uh, or if you don't want to have a question about when to prune, try panicled hydrangea or smooth hydrangea. Now, the cheerleader or the celebrity of a smooth hydrangea is probably Annabelle Hydrangea. It's been around a long time. Um, It is named after a town called Anna, and all the ladies in the town of Anna were growing this beautiful selection of smooth hydrangea. Uh, They would pass cuttings along fences, and the whole town of Anna was filled uh, with this beautiful hydrangea, and so it became called Annabelle for the Bells of Anna. So great plant with a great story steeped in history, and it is easy to uh, remember when to prune it because you can essentially prune it any time of the growing season. Now, the last hydrangea that I want to mention that you may be growing, that you may have friends that are growing, if you're not growing it, you probably should because it's another beautiful hydrangea, it's called the oak leaf hydrangea. Now, oak leaf hydrangea does have cone-shaped spires. Their blossoms are not mop heads like the southern living hydrangeas, the pinks and the blue shaggy mop heads. These are cone-shaped and very extended in their shape, I would say. Some selections are lace cap and some are full blossom to blossom. Uh, However, this particular hydrangea, it does bear its flowers on old wood just like big leaf hydrangea. And so if you have an oak leaf hydrangea, and let me tell you, you will know it's oak leaf because the leaf looks like an oak tree leaf. So it doesn't have a smooth, round leaf. These leaves actually look like oak leaves. Very beautiful. But the oak leaf hydrangea does bear its blossoms on last year's wood, on old wood. And so if you prune them in late winter to early spring, you will not have a flower show. You won't have flowers. You'll be chopping off their beautiful flower heads, and it will have beautiful leaves, but no flowers for this season. And so when it comes to hydrangeas and knowing when to prune them so that you have the best bloom show ever, be sure that you know which kind you have. The big leaf and the oak leaf hydrangeas, they need to be pruned after they bloom because they bloom before June. (laughs) But then the smooth hydrangea, And the panicled hydrangeas, both of those can safely be pruned in late spring, sorry, late winter or early spring, depending on when you're ready to get out there and start chopping off uh, branches. And they will successfully bloom throughout the rest of the growing season. And if you deadhead them, you may get even more extended blooming period. 
So I thought this would be a good opportunity, even though we do have an episode all about hydrangeas. We've talked about new, uh, on New Southern Garden. We've talked about hydrangeas probably extensively because hydrangeas are just classic for the South, are they not? But if you want to look back online at NewSouthernGarden.com, you'll find a, hyd- a hydrangea episode. And I remember it's a couple of years ago now, but we did talk all about these hydrangeas and how to keep care of them and how to fertilize them, how to change the color of the uh, blue hydrangeas to pink and how to change the pink hydrangeas to blue. So be sure to check out New Southern Garden online for more of that hydrangea goodness. Like I said, I don't know of a plant that is more iconic, probably Southern Magnolia, maybe crepe Myrtle, uh, maybe Camellia, maybe Gardenia, but hydrangea falls into that group of plants that we've grown here in the South for years particularly because hydrangeas, they're, they're easy to grow, they are easy to propagate, and like I said about the bells of Anna, it's easy to stick a hydrangea cutting maybe in a glass of water or in a little pot of soil, and in a few weeks you've got a new plant. And so because of these aspects, it's been a big contender in the southern garden. They're very versatile. Uh, the panicles and the smooth hydrangeas and the oak leaves, they can all go in pretty bright, harsh sun. Uh, however, the big leaves do do benefit from a bit of shade. If you put any hydrangea in the sun, remember it will need a lot of water. If it gets dry, it will let you know the hydrangeas, no matter which kind you have, they are the first plant to let you know that the soil is dry. And so you will see their little leaves looking all sad and wilted about the uh, end of the afternoon uh, on a hot summer's day. And you'll know that you need to get out there and you need to do some watering because they need it. Okay, so if you have irrigation, definitely irrigate your hydrangeas. But otherwise, hydrangeas are so classic. They're so classic for the South, particularly because they like our climate. There are parts of this country that hydrangeas just don't grow too well. I know that I have a client from Wisconsin, and they try to grow hydrangeas. But every winter, the hydrangea stems and leaves get hit by the cold, and they die to the ground. Now, they make it. The root system makes it, but they never get blossoms because the tops get cut down to the ground. But here in the south, we don't have that problem. Maybe a little frost damage if we have a late frost. But otherwise, grow your hydrangeas and let us here at New Southern Garden help you grow them well. We'll be right back with more of your questions. Stories are told come to life. Nathan Wilson's new Southern Garden Show is on the air. Your host, Nathan Wilson, with Lanier Nursery and Gardens in Flowery Branch, Georgia, is excited about providing information every gardener and non-gardener, homeowner, and apartment dweller can use. From vegetables to containers and compost to pruning shears, Nathan Wilson's New Southern Garden Show is here for you. Now here's Nathan. Well, gang, here we are for the second half of the New Southern Garden Show. Of course, I'm so glad you can be here. Of course, I'm Nathan Wilson, and we're here to help you get growing and growing well because today is our Q&A week. And that means that we have collected all of the questions from the past uh, go, uh, past few weeks, and we are gathering them using what we can in this short hour that we have to help you get growing and growing well. So we appreciate all of the questions we get from you folks. Uh, If we can't get to them on the air, I do apologize. Just not enough time. But we do like to send a message to those uh, in response. 
if we can't get the answer on the program. But we do have some great questions. But before we get into that, I do want to say that, you know, this past week, this past week, uh, we had some very cool, cold weather. You know, operating a plant nursery, like I've said before, at Lanier Nursery and Gardens, where you can find me throughout the week, that's Flowery Branch, Georgia, we do have trials and tribulations. Even the professionals, now that's in air quotes, the professionals, we have trials and tribulations just like you. So don't think that working with nature on a professional scale is any more successful than on an amateur or hobbyist scale. Because this past week, we were anticipating some chilly weather. And boy, did we get it. We probably underestimated the power that nature had this week. We recently, of course, at the nursery started carrying annual flowers. You know, begonias, petunias, coleus, impatience, beautiful plants. Because we are past our average last frost date. Now, our average last frost date here in USDA Hardiness Zone 7 is April 15th, which happens to be my birthday. I guess I was made for this, born for this. But regardless, April 15th, and then those of you who garden further north, it's a little later, and those of you who garden further south in Zone 7, it's a little earlier, your average last frost is just that. Your average last frost is just an average. Now, that means that you might have frost before April 15th, and you may have frosts right after April 15th. So, using that date is very beneficial. It is very helpful to know when the average last frost for your zone is. However, it cannot be the, the date where you feel most secure. Because last week, or this past week, we did get down below 40. I believe we probably got to 34 or 36. And that is too low for things like coleus and impatience and whatnot. And we had just stocked up because things were looking good a couple of weeks ago, saying, hey, we'll be in the 40s. We're not going to get any cooler or colder. But guess what? We did. And so at the nursery, uh, we weren't anticipating it getting as cold as it really did. So we felt secure by using some frost cloth. Now, frost cloth is a lightweight kind of a spun. Well, it's not really woven, but I guess it's a spun fabric. Um, and it lays on top of the plants. It's light, so it doesn't crush the little stems and, and do any breaking. But it does keep the frost away unless it gets too cold. And I will say that we did have an issue. It got a bit too cold for a few items. We had probably the coleus were hit the hardest. We've trimmed them back and encouraged them to grow. We'll see how they do in a few few days. The uh, angelonias, the tips, they were beautiful. Their flowers were up high like beautiful sp uh, spikes in the air. They got hit, and so did the, uh, well, the petunias are pretty tough, and the begonias are pretty tough. Little damage on those, but not much. Uh, but the salvias, the salvias like it really hot. That's Salvia's nature. She likes it hot. She likes it warm. She doesn't like it cold at all. 
But we did see some life in those plants, and so we've given them a trim, given them some fertilizer, and we're going to encourage them to grow over the next few weeks, and I think we'll have some good recovery. But I just want to let you know that it's this time of year where, I, you know, I've been encouraging you to wait, to wait at least to April 15th to plant uh, uh, annual flowers, and if you planted any this year at April 15th or between this week, or between April 15th and this past week, you probably saw some frost damage in our area. With that being said... Don't think that the professionals don't make mistakes. We, we're all at Mother Nature's mercy, are we not? She's going to give us what she gives us. She's going to give, I guess, the earth what it needs. And so we just sit and wait and we pray. Uh, and that's what we've been doing this week, praying. But it looks like we're in the clear. Of course, I said that about a week and a half ago. It looks like we're in the clear. And then, sure enough, we had a frost, uh, frosty night. So I say all this because this next question that we have uh, comes from Charlotte, North Carolina. And our friend, Devin, she's an avid listener, says, love the show. She's got a question about a tree. And um, she's finding uh, that this particularly does look like cherry tree. She identifies it as cherry, and she sent some pictures. It does look like a cherry tree. She says that, uh, well, first of all, she loves the show, looks forward to listening every weekend. Um, Her husband and herself, they bought their first house last year. Gardening has quickly become a favorite hobby, which is a wonderful thing. And she has a cherry tree, she thinks, and I would say that it is, looking at the pictures. But it looks like the trunk has these deep gouges in it. Almost like someone took an axe to it in sections. Any ideas what could be causing it? Uh, And she does send us some photos. Because when she sent her question, the gouges kind of stumped me. I was wondering, what kind of gouges? How do these gouges look in relation to the tree? And now that we have some photos, I think we can successfully identify what's going on. So let me um, sort of describe what we're seeing in these photos. So running up and down this cherry tree trunk. It's quite a large cherry tree. I would say that's got several years of growth here, definitely over a decade. But um, they are kind of erratic gouges. I guess that is a good word to use, Devin. Uh, and some cracking. We do see some areas which crack. Now, of course, an axe would make a very uniform pattern. These are not very uniform. So we know that it's not that kind of damage. But I do see up and down these this damaged area some peeling of the bark. We can see where the trunk of the tree is starting to heal because there are wounds there. Now, what I would suspect this is, this has to do with what we just talked about, about cold weather. Uh, So, Devin, this kind of damage I would diagnose as either um, sun scald or some people call it southwest injury. And I'm going to be sure to send you some information uh, to your email about this. But sun scald or southwest injury is something that happens over winter. And it particularly can, in, uh, can damage or be a problem for thin-barked trees, such as cherry, especially young trees. So many young trees will do this, uh, but cherries, they have thin bark for their entire life, and they are more susceptible to this kind of problem. So what is happening here is that usually the southwestern exposed area Okay, that is going to be the area over winter that warms up very quickly. Okay, so that very, it may be temperatures above 77 on that side of the tree on a nice warm day in the sunny south. Even though it's wintertime, the daytimes can be quite, uh, quite warm. 
and this side, the southwestern side, gets very warm. So during the day, that warm sunshine, warm heat, is stimulating cells underneath the bark to start growing. So they, they're supposed to be dormant, right? They're supposed to be just chilling out for summer. But because of the warm temperatures, they are stimulated to start growing much like they would do in spring. But then at nighttime, the temperatures drop dramatically. It's no longer 77. It may be in the 30s. It may be below the freezing temperatures. And those cells that have been stimulated to grow, they become frozen and damaged. You see? So where if they stay dormant, they would be okay, they're starting to grow, starting to do what cells do, but then they can't handle that winter temperature at nighttime. And so you will see these sort of erratic areas of peeling right underneath the bark, which then expose the inner part of the tree. And the plant has to do some healing. Now, I'll say that at this point in the year, there's not much you can do, but I am going to talk in a few minutes about what you can do over winter to help prevent this from happening any, any further. But looking at your photos, Devin, I do see that the uh, tree is trying to heal itself. You'll notice that along the edges of the damage, there is this sort of material we call callus. Calloused material, which is getting, um, which is getting thick, uh, it's pushing closer and closer towards the center of the damage, trying to heal that wound. Because on one of the deepest gouge I see, I can see the interior of the tree. But if you look on the edges, you'll notice that callus is growing. So a very good chance that this will heal. Uh, some of the smaller areas, sm smaller gouges, they're not nearly as bad. Some of them look completely healed. But it's very possible that this damage, of course, you were not here uh, for this damage since you bought the house last year. This was probably done several years ago, maybe even when the tree was a bit younger. And it's still working on trying to heal itself. That biggest gouge may or may not heal. There's nothing you can necessarily do at this point uh, to to uh, help the tree. It's going to have to fend for itself. It's going to have to grow for itself. Don't go to any kind of box store, garden center, and buy um, uh, tree paint or pruning paint or limb paint, whatever they call it. Some products are brushed on. Some products are sprayed. That's all a marketing gimmick. I will guarantee you this, that the plant does not need your or my help to heal. If you have a plant that, you know, a limb is broken, don't paint it. Don't paint these open gouges because they are going to heal naturally uh, if they can. But there's really nothing further you can do. Those paints, actually, I'll go ahead and mention since I brought up that uh, pruning paint or whatever they call it, is, is really more detrimental to the plant than to, the, um, uh, to, to, to encouraging healing. Uh, that paint can trap a lot of water around the, the wound, and water can increase fungus and bacteria and insects that may do even more damage. So I would say let's stay away from any of these paints anytime we prune a tree or have damage like you do here, Devin. Be sure that you let the tree heal naturally. So again, what we are seeing here, Devin, on your cherry tree is a sun scald or southwest injury. And this basically refers to damage that is incurred by the killing of active cells within the trunk and the limbs of sensitive trees during winter months. That would be sort of a textbook explanation there. And you are seeing this because 
the uh, the exposed bark that's on the tree. It warms up on a sunny day where the previously dormant cells uh, are becoming active again in response to that warmth. But then at nighttime, those newly activated cells uh, lose, they lose their cold hardiness because they're activated. And when winter temperatures hit at night, those cells are damaged. Then you have this cracking, you have the peeling of the bark, and hopefully you're going to have plenty of success in the plant healing itself. If it's not too extensive, and I would say that your biggest gouge is quite large, but it does look like the tree is trying to heal itself, that's what we can do. Again, some of the trees that are susceptible to this sun scald are particularly going to be either young trees or trees that have very thin bark. Thinner bark increases that susceptibility to this kind of sun scald um, uh, injury. Now, some tree. Now, so how about some examples of other trees? Of course, cherry, apple, ash, crab apple, maple, honey locust. If you have any of that, oaks at a young age, peach willows all these can be susceptible to this kind of injury uh, but when we get back from this quick break i am going to go into some details about how you can prevent sun scald devon uh, from happening again this next winter trying to keep your trees that beautiful cherry tree healthy and protected against this sun scald southwest injury i'm going to give you some ideas for doing that in just a few moments hang on tight gang we'll be right back Hey gang, do you sometimes feel like you are riding a lonely trail while gardening, all alone with no one to join in the fun? Well, join the new Southern Garden community today and find peace of mind by sharing your experiences, whether they be poor ones or successful ones. New Southern Garden is on Facebook and Instagram, so I'd love for you to friend, follow, like, share whatever it is we're doing these days. Also, you can check out our website at NewSouthernGarden.com where you can not only find every episode of the show ever, but you can also send us a question via our Contact Us page. It's never fun gardening alone, so get social with the New Southern Garden family and let's grow well. Well, gang, I really want to say a big thank you to Rhoda and Devin today for their questions. Of course, Rhoda had a question about hydrangeas, and we not only answered her question, but gave a little more bonus about all hydrangeas. And of course, Devin has this injury to a cherry tree. She's wondering what it is. I think we've successfully identified it from her photographs as sun scald injury or southwest injury, which is a kind of injury that happens over winter. But I do want to say thank you to both of our wonderful listeners there for sending a question. And if you have a question that you want answered, be sure to uh, check us out online at NewSouthernGarden.com because there you can leave a question on the contact us page. You can listen to every episode we've ever had. If you're thumbing through and find a topic that interests you or a topic that you've had problems with, you may find the answer there. And then, of course, on Facebook and Instagram is where you can send us photos and, and uh, well, pictures are photos, but also videos of what may be going on in your landscape. Now, just as promised, just as promised, we are going to uh, finish up uh, answering Devin's question because now that we've identified and talked about what kind of injury she has on her cherries, I would say 
that we need to prevent any more happening. So most likely, Devin, you're not going to have any issues with um, sunscald injury at this point in the game because here we are in spring. We're not really having freezing temperatures and warm days. It's going to be warm days and warm nights to some degree. But uh, going forward into the fall and winter, there are some things that you may want to do. Luckily, trying to protect trees from this sunscald injury is inexpensive and uh, pretty easy. One of the easiest things you can do is use white paint. Now, you've seen this probably. Some particular trees and neighborhoods may have their barks painted white. Now, there's a good reason for that uh, for sunscald because the white paint is going to reflect light in wintertime, and it's going to allow the tree to, to stay at the ideal temperature rather than warming up. But the problem is white paint doesn't look too attractive. If you choose to use white paint, though, just be sure you're using an interior paint. You're diluting it one-to-one, so one cup of paint and one cup of water, and paint it on the southwestern side of the trunk. You don't necessarily have to heat up or paint up the entire trunk. But like I said, it is a very... Oh, 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 oh. Be sure to use interior paint because exterior paint may have some antimicrobial aspects that could damage the tree. So if you choose to go that route, uh, be sure you use an interior latex paint that is white. With that being said, a painted trunk is not very aesthetic. It doesn't make the tree look very good. So there are a couple other things that you can do. Now, again, we're talking about the southwestern exposure, the southwestern side of the tree, or trees that are on the uh, southwestern side of your property, they'll probably be the most affected by this kind of sun scald. The other thing you could do that involves gardening and planting is thinking about your garden design. Do you have any evergreen trees that are on that side, the southwestern side of the boundary? If you don't have any evergreen trees on that side of the boundary, it's a great idea to plant them because not only can they help to to, uh, create a windbreaker, uh, or windbreak, they can also help to keep uh, that side of the plant maybe a bit shaded, a bit more protected by having less exposure to the sun with evergreen foliage hanging around the southwestern side of the tree or of the property. So planting some evergreens is a good idea. It's very aesthetic. It's not like white paint, whitewashed, looks like Tom Sawyer came in and brushed all your trees. Of course, he probably had somebody else do it for him, but uh, planting an evergreen border is a great idea. And then there are a couple of products you can do, uh, can use. There is a, uh, a tree wrap, kind of a winter tree wrap, which is very uh, thin. You may find them at garden centers. We don't carry at Lanier Nursery and Gardens, uh, but you can probably find them online. It's a tree wrap that can be wrapped around the tree from fall to early or early spring, late winter, but no longer. Okay, so it's a white, usually a white product that can be wrapped around the tree. It's going to protect the tree over winter. But as soon as the tree starts to grow, as soon as spring comes, you got to take it off because it will keep moisture in between the wrap and the tree, 
particularly, probably causing some bacterial problems, fungal problems, but also insects love to climb in between the tree uh, wrapping there, and they can become a problem as well. So a tree wrap is a good idea, and again, it's something that is going to be temporary. It's something that you're only going to keep around the plant for a short period of time, beginning in fall, and then of course going into the uh, winter months because that's when the sun scald damage occurs. Now, the last thing that you could do would be to take a board, take a board that is uh, painted white, and you can prop it up on the north, uh, sorry, on the southwestern side of the tree where the damage is occurring. You can prop it up, and that board will reflect a lot of the light that the sun is emitting over winter. That's simple enough. Uh, you can go to the lumber store, go to the whatever, the uh, box stores, the hardware stores, get you a piece of lumber, probably just uh, depending on the size of your trunk, maybe three or four feet wide and as tall as you can go so that you can protect the whole length of that trunk. But you can prop it up, secure it so it doesn't fall over and become a liability issue. Paint the outside of that board white, and that will reflect a lot of the light, and it will protect your tree uh, over winter. Then, of course, when winter is over, all you've got to do is take that board out of the ground, and you will be ready to go for spring. And you may continue to do this, Devin. I'm not sure when the um, damage on your tree happened, and of course, you've only been there for a year or so. And you probably don't know when it happened, but it does look like it probably happened sometime back. And so um, it's possible that the tree is at a certain age, that it's going to be less susceptible. But regardless, if you want to try the wrapping around the tree, I don't know about the painting, if that's such a good idea, uh, but you can plant an evergreen hedge in front of it uh, or some distance away if those trees grow tall enough to protect that stem. And then, of course, you could use a painted white board. There is nothing really biological happening here. There is no bacteria or fungus that we have to spray for. It's all a uh, cultural situation. It's all climatic in, in nature. And so, yes, the, uh, the damage is happening to the tree, but there's no, like, simple spray. I would say this is more simple of a solution than using a spray. But the trouble is, because your plant is being wounded uh, in this sun-scald manner, it is opening the tree up for possible insect problems, for uh, fungal or bacterial problems that could be secondary in nature. So with that in mind, even though you're not going to spray those wounds with some kind of pruning paint or healing paint, those are all just gimmicks and detrimental to the plant, you could spray your cherry tree for uh, insects that may carry disease to those open wounds, and you may preventatively use a fungicide to help uh, prevent any further problems that may come around due to those large gaping wounds. Well, with all that being said, folks, it has been a wonderful day here at New Southern Garden. I'm so glad that you've decided to join us. Now, of course, today was a Q&A week, and if you have questions that you would like to see answered in our next Q&A week, be sure to send them to NewSouthernGarden uh, at gmail.com, or you can go online at NewSouthernGarden.com and find the contact us page 
send us pictures, send us videos through Facebook and Instagram, and we'll be glad to answer your questions. Next week, we're going to continue talking about perennial gardens and getting one started in your landscape. So for New Southern Garden and WRWH 93.9 FM, I'm Nathan Wilson, hoping you stay well and grow well. We'll see you next week. Hey, thanks for joining us for this edition of Nathan Wilson's New Southern Garden Show. If you have a comment about today's program, you can reach out to Nathan by sending an email to grow at LanierNurseryGardens.com. Also get more information at NewSouthernGarden.com. Join us next Saturday on Local News Radio 93.9 FM and AM 1350 for Nathan Wilson's New Southern Garden Show.